Hello, Modern War listeners. I'm Captain Jake Moraldi. Today in the podcast, we'll be interviewing General Retired Michael Hayden, former NSA and CIA director. General Hayden was the director of the NSA from 1999 to 2005 and the CIA director from 2006 until 2009. We discuss how intelligence operations have changed over his long career in the Air Force and as the NSA and CIA director, as well as some of the tactical implications of the evolution of intelligence over that time. As always, the opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the respective participants and do not constitute the position of the United States government. Please make sure you take the time to rate and comment on iTunes if you like this podcast. And continue to check out mwi.usma.edu for op-eds and other thinking on modern war. Next week's podcast will be with Major General Retired Robert Scales, talking about his new book on the future of war. Sir, so welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you. Um, I want to start kind of higher level and, and we'll neck down to sure. a more specific level. Um, first and foremost, you've had a long and distinguished career in the intelligence field. Over the course of your career, how has intelligence changed? Well, I mean, one aspect I think is very important is that intelligence has always been important, but I actually think it's grown in importance in the last 15 years or so, I, I, particularly with regard to terrorism. I, um, I kind of tell a story that during the Cold War, where I spent most of my professional life, uh, the enemy was hard to stop, but, but he was relatively easy to find. I mean, echelon tank armies in East Germany, group Soviet forces Germany, that's an intelligence challenge, but we could probably locate them. Stopping it was another matter. What we have found in today's war, particularly terrorism, but it, it extends to others, that uh, we've got the combat power to stop just about anybody if we can find them. And it now becomes the intelligence function that's actually the critical function in American operational success. Do you find that to be true across the entire spectrum of war, or is that mostly a, a terrorism-focused change? It, it's, it's mostly terrorism-focused, but, but I also think, again, give, given the extent of our combat power, all right, if we can provide our combat forces good situational awareness, uh, by and large, I think the odds are quite good. We, we come out of that battlefield victorious. Now, I get the point. We, if we move into an era in which we're actually forced to compete against a peer or a near peer, uh, th then we might revert to a previous universe in which intelligence remains an important and usually the first step, but that, that the operational act is, is, is actually uh, even more difficult. But, but again, uh, even in that scenario, I, I think we've – well, look, let me, let me put it to you this way, all right? We, most American military commanders now expect an omniscient, near-God's-eye view of the battle space. And if my community doesn't provide that to them, they actually believe that's some sort of failure. And so that's a pretty high bar, but it, it's, it's a challenge that we're willing to, to, to meet. What are some of the current themes that we see in warfare generally, the A2AD, the gray war, hybrid war kind of concepts? How do those influence the way that we understand intelligence currently? Well, I mean, it's a little bit like the terrorism war. All right? Nobody wants to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with us now. All right, so we have an enemy that's not going to go force on force. It uses terrorism. Well, same with hybrid war. 
not force on force. We, we've gone into this gray zone. Now, this is a different kind of gray zone than a terrorist gray zone, but it's a gray zone. And it then presents intelligence with, with other challenges to be as precise and, dare I use the word, exquisite as it has been in, in the war on terror. So let's talk Crimea. All right. Now I'm out of government. I don't, I don't know the fine print. But the questions I would ask is, how much did my old community give policymakers in terms of a really good situational awareness as to what was going on in there? And not just reporting it as it happened, but anticipating it, given this new form of war, given that the old sets of indicators probably didn't work for this kind of conflict. How well can we do that? And I, I expect those are the kinds of challenges that intelligence is going to have to face uh, going forward. We have forced people off the traditional battlefield because we, are un we cannot be defeated on the traditional battlefield. And now we go into these other, as I said, gray spaces, and we still expect intelligence to give us that omniscient, near God's eye view. In an effort to, to reach that level of omniscience, as you said, is it something that we understand or the intelligence community understands as a problem that can be solved through technology or through a more robust ground collection sure. yeah. uh, sort of plan? What, what, are the, what are the trends we're thinking about as to how to counter that, that trend? That's a great question. And, and, and frankly, all the parts are moving. There, there's nothing stable here, all right? And, and so we've, we've entered into this digitized information age. And, and frankly, from an intelligence officer's point of view, that's kind of the golden age of electronic surveillance. When, when the entire planet puts things they used to keep at least in a desk drawer and now put it in, into a phone, <laughs> all right, uh, it makes it more retrievable by, by espionage services, all right? So, so you, you've got a, a, a shifting uh, landscape there that we have to we have to adjust to. Beyond that, an awful lot of things, and here it's probably more at the policy level than at the level of a military commander at whatever echelon. A lot of things a policymaker now needs to know in order to make a wise decision. A lot of that stuff doesn't have to be stolen anymore. A lot of that stuff is now generally available. So, in addition to kind of changing its classic uh, collection techniques. My old community has got to get over the fact that uh, it needs to respect open source and readily available information and be far more energetic weaving that information into its storyline to inform policymakers so that policymakers have a very complete view. I'll give you one really concrete example. I mean, we're all troubled by the Arab awakening, the so-called Arab Spring. Um, you know, that the fact that that was going to happen wasn't in a dossier in the lower right-hand drawer of Omar Suleiman, the head of the Egyptian service, that if we only had purloined that file, we could have informed policymakers. Omar didn't know. By the way, Omar was a good friend of the United States, but he also supported his good friend, Hosni Mubarak. Um, if Omar doesn't know, no amount of espionage to learn that fact is going to tell you that fact. If that fact were knowable and, dare I say, predictable, it wasn't through routine espionage. It was actually being able to absorb things that were out there had we but the wisdom to observe them and learn from them. That's a new kind of job for, for American espionage, and I hope we're up to the task. Stepping back a little bit, in terms of the wars we've been fighting over the past 15 years, are the trends you're talking about born of our experience over those 
those last last fifteen years, or are they are they new based on what we're seeing coming up in in the more recent past? No, I, I think the, I think the more powerful trend lines right now are the products of being in conflict for fifteen years. All right, and now now it's directly affected by the nature of the conflict, but it's also affected by the fact of conflict. And and so I you know I if the guy's still in Intel were here, they'd probably raise a hand of objection here. But I think there's a lot of truth. If I were to tell you right now, an awful lot of what we call analysis in the American intelligence community is targeting. All right, it's targeting for action, targeting for collection, or targeting to make sure somebody doesn't get on an airplane. It is disambiguation of data. It is going to the nth significant digit of, of detail. And by the way, that's a good thing. A bunch of Americans are alive today because we were able to do that. Right? But it's not the only thing. And I fear it's been at the expense of that broader global, strategic, historic view that policymakers are going to need to have in order to, to make wise policy in, in the years ahead. So it's just not the nature of the current war. It's the fact of the current war. Um, I, you know, look, I was part of this, all right? I'm, I'm not criticizing people currently in government. I did this too. But my day at CIA, every day that went by, I was more operational, more tactical, more present tense than I should have been. I need to reserve some time, some mental energy, the psychic energy of the agency for these broader questions. And that's just hard to do. Fact of war, not just the nature of war. Well, that actually kind of segues nicely into what I was was going to ask you about. Intelligence kind of permeates, obviously, all the way from the policy realm all the way down to the tactical level. And I think you see more of that being borne out in the wars that we're, we're currently fighting in that I, as a tactical-level commander, need to have and have access to intelligence or intelligence capabilities that maybe I wouldn't have had 20 years ago. Um, How do you view that devolution of capability, not only on on our side, but also on the side of of adversaries? So on our side, let me talk to that first. I actually think we're actually pretty good at that. Now, this is going back in history. I've been out of government eight years and been longer than that since I've been in NSA. But in the second Gulf War, all right. We moved heaven and earth to end the distinction between national and tactical signals intelligence. Uh, I, I, I tell the story that we had people at Fort Gordon, Georgia, where we've got national collection going on, tuning antennas in Marine radio battalions. And we also had Army SIGINT units, all right, affecting the antennas on what up until that point had been labeled national collection means. One of the things I think we actually did very well was to allow tactical signatures in our forward deployed forces knowledge of and access to national level databases and national level collection systems. When um, General uh, Sattler left command of the Marine Forces in Anbar province, he sent me a note, and I'm director of NSA, And he sent me a note about what we had done to enable his Marines to be as successful as they were uh, in Anbar. So I think actually that part, we're we're really quite good. Uh, And I don't think any of our adversaries are that good. Number one, they've not been in combat for 15 years. You really perfect this stuff when when lives are are on the line. So I do think this is a built-in advantage. But remember what I warned about earlier, though. The battlefield isn't the only intelligence problem we have. It demands our time, and if we're not careful, it takes all of our time and energy. 
And again, as I warned, we, we need to also be aware of these deeper strategic historic things that we have to be tracking. A lot of times we talk about the devolution of capability down from what would have been a state-only sort of capability not that long ago to a much more democratized capability across a broad spectrum of, of people and adversaries potentially. I'm curious about what some of the, the bottom-up intelligence capability are available to adversaries and, and us now uh, that may not have been 20 years ago. And you mentioned some of the open source right. things that are available. Um, I'm curious and, how and you – And frankly, all the digital information that's right. floating around out there to be collected if we could only understand it. Right. And, and I'm curious where you see that trend going or, or how good we are as a military or as a, you know, a defense structure in gleaning – relevant information out of that more bottom-up intelligence capability so, that exists. So that's, that's, a, that's a long form of the question, how about big data? <laughs> and how do, you, how do you handle big data? And, and that's something that uh, certainly the American intelligence community is really, really focused on. Let me give you a, a thought or two about what Mike Hayden thinks about big data. Number one, I like it. It's good. We need to exploit it. We need big, powerful algorithms that organize it. Uh, structure it, and then present it. But here's the punchline. All that magic silicon going on there is all designed to enable the carbon-based machine at the end of the process. It's not designed to replace the carbon-based machine. And, and, I, and I fear sometimes that in our love affair with, with, with big data, we forget that it's supposed to be a tool of the human analysis that must take place at the end of the process. It should not be designed to replace the human analysis uh, in, in the process. And so there's a cautionary note from, from me. Do everything we can to master it. But remember, at the end of the day, you want human judgment before you tell a president something that's going to affect national policy or you tell a brigade commander something that's going to affect life and death. So in line with the the more bottom-up kind of intelligence capabilities, I'm also sort of curious about some of, some of the social media or more crowdsourced potential intelligence that we have um, and how we go about integrating that into the, the more technologically-based sure. kind of higher-order intelligence picture sure. that we develop. So we talked earlier about so much being available out there, you don't have to steal it if only you collect it and understand it. I mean, we, we've got in my professional career, particularly in signals intelligence, from a world in which it was too little, too hard to get, to a world in which it's just too much, too hard to understand. And so now, how do you, how do you meet that challenge? In the Arab Awakening, it's my understanding that the American intelligence community got good enough that they were about able to track what was going on through social media. That's good. I like that. That's not good enough. What you want to be able to do is to anticipate what might be going on shortly through, through social media. And, and that's one of the great challenges that both art and science have, both technology and analysis now have. How do you use this tool so that you can anticipate events to enable policymakers or commanders uh, to, to make the right decision and, and, and to save lives? Work in progress. I would not make the claim that yeah, we, we've got that now and just put another $20 million in the in the budget and we'll be home free. I, I, don't, I don't think that's true. But it's something that, uh, that we are indeed pursuing. And now your other point is, is well taken, though. 
we're better able to do that than any social media company might be able to do because we can actually integrate it into a larger framework created by access to information that no social media company can get. So given all the different means by which we can collect intelligence and all of the different assets that we have available to to gather and analyze that intelligence, the question that I have focusing more on more on a tactical level on a brigade sure. battalion commander level is as a commander of a tactical level formation what are some of my responsibilities and what are the pros and cons so to speak sure. of having that much intelligence and how do i go about making an, an informed decision right. using it let, let, let me let me offer a, a recommendation maybe another caution all right no matter how good your intelligence is it never replaces the function of command it's never going to give you the certitude you know, where, where it looks like your two has just come in and given you whereas, 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 and whereas, and you get to say, well, heck, therefore, that's easy. There will always be ambiguity. It's never going to remove doubt. Actually, let me give you a, a working definition of intelligence. It's not court of law stuff where you're supposed to get something beyond all reasonable doubt. The purpose of intelligence is to enable decisive action even in the face of lingering doubt. And so if I'm talking to future commanders, I'm, I'm telling them this is it. Okay? This is as good as it gets. Don't expect omniscience. Don't expect certainty. Expect good information. Expect your two. Expect your two to have enough information to create the left and the right-hand boundaries of logical, tactical moves. But he's not going to be determinative. That's your job. In line with that point, uh, in your book, at one point you talk about the the policy or the decision-maker side being focused on an idealized end state. Right. Whereas the intelligence community, and, and I assume even at a, a tactical level, your average S2 is focused very much on the here and now and the, and the factual rational right. picture that is being shown by what is in front of him. Can you yeah, explain how, yeah, how, to, how to reconcile yeah. those, those yes, two sir, a little Commander, bit? I, I know you want a rate of advance over this terrain to be 20 kilometers an hour, but I'm telling you the best you can do is 12. Right, those kinds of things. It's actually easier to discuss, a little, little easier at the policy level. All right, And, and the line I use is the... The intel guy and the policymaker, the decision maker, all right, have to get together. But they come into the room through different doors. And as you suggest, the intel guy is the fact-based guy. The policymaker, the vision-based guy. The, the, the intel guy is kind of the world-as-it-is guy. The policymaker, the world-as-we-want-it-to-be. Right? The intel guy is inductive. He or she is swimming in a sea of data and trying to create some generalized conclusions for the commander or the president. The policy person in the room is not inductive. He or she's deductive. They're trying to take their general principles and apply it to a specific circumstance. And then finally, the intel guy, if he or she's worth anything, is inherently pessimistic. Whereas the president, the policymaker, and dare I say most commanders, they have to be optimistic, otherwise they wouldn't be doing this in the first place. And so you've got these, these two worldviews, and it's the job of the two whether it's in a talk or in the Oval Office, to track down the policymaker and get inside his or her head, even though you know with every sentence you're uttering, you're making their job worse, their day worse than it would otherwise be, because you can't break your tether to the reason you're allowed in the room in the first place. You're the fact-based, world-as-it-is, inductive, pessimistic person, and you've got to stay true to that. 
So I think it's I think it's an interesting kind of dichotomy that you're talking about between the the decision maker and the intel guy. And I think as we who who I tend to focus in this podcast on sort of a tactical level right. view right. of the world, I find it interesting to look at the difference between the commander who wants to achieve something specific and the intel guy that is giving him the background and the basics of what's available to him, sort of the left and right as you discussed, and how difficult that can potentially be given just how much information there is out there. And I think I think you phrased it extremely well talking about the fact that I as a commander can't expect perfect clarity, right. whether, I, whether I want it to be that way or not. So let me, let me give you another, another angle to, to look at this problem, right? R- rather than, you know, the commander demands and the intel guy delivers as much as he can, right? Look at it as interactive, right? And here, here's what I mean. So we're, we're shortly into the war on terror. I'm director of NSA, and I'm down in Tampa, and I'm having dinner with Charlie Holland. And Charlie at the time was commander of SOCOM. We're good friends. We, we're in uh, Capstone together and Air Force officers and so on. So we're having that one of those what the diplomats call frank and wide-ranging discussions, all right? And at one point, just about over dessert, so you know we're kind of warmed up in our conversation, Charlie starts pounding the table and says, Mike, Mike, I need actionable intelligence. I need actionable intelligence. And I go, Charlie, I got it. But let me give you another thought. You give me a little action. I'll give you a lot more intelligence. In other words, the commander can create the circumstances in which he gets a better awareness of the battlefield if we have this interactive relationship between the commander, the two, and the three. The commander actually can create the opportunities for a more clear intelligence picture. And that's a dialogue that needs to be continuous and ongoing. And I think that actually leads to the, to the highest level of the art form whether it be the J3, the G3s or the G2s art form. That being said, and I think that's a really important point to make is the is the push pull and the you know the interaction between the operation side and the intelligence side. I always ask this of of the guests that we have on this podcast. If you're a cadet or a junior officer, what does this mean for you? If you're going out to the force here next summer to be a platoon leader someplace, what does our understanding of intelligence and the intelligence field more broadly mean for me, and, and how can I prepare to use it to its full effect? Well, a, a couple of macro thoughts, and maybe repeating some of the themes that have been suggested so far. Uh, number one, your intelligence service is actually pretty good. In fact, let me rephrase that. They're the best in the world. They really are. Now, are they, is they, are they as good as we want them to be? Of course not. But they, they are the best in the world. That's one. Number two, as a commander, you have to understand the limits of intelligence. The same way you know the limits of indirect fire and the limits of logistics. You need to understand the limits of intelligence. And then finally, and I really mean this to report or to repeat a recent point, this is not you call they haul in terms of intelligence. Intelligence is, is, is actually part of a function of command, and you can create better intelligence by building that requirement into your operational scheme so that you as a commander in your two can actually present you a, a more robust, more complete picture of the battlefield. So all, all, all those things, right? It's actually pretty good, right? It does have its limits, and you have a role to play in its success. I think those are the three thoughts I'd, I'd leave. 
What do you think are some of the best ways for cadets to prepare themselves to be able to do those three things or to understand those three things yeah. more fully? Uh, I mean, you know, I guess study hard. <laughs> and, and, and I mean that. I mean, you have a wonderful opportunity here. And I, I don't mean just the, the, the specific learning in a course and you get a good grade. You have a wonderful opportunity, given the richness of the curriculum at an institution like this, to actually experience things that most Americans can only read about. You can walk battlefields. You can talk to commanders. You can interact with people of, of like mind and, and, and like interest. Take advantage of all those informal things. I mean, the classroom stuff's important. It's really important. But when you get out into America's army and have this sense, this responsibility of command, the bigger sense of the broader world that you've been able to create, it, it just gives you so much more to fall back on and in order to make the, the, the kinds of decisions that lead to success. Great. Well, Director Hayden, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Thank um, you. Yeah, thank you so much. Right. If you'd like to find additional research, op-eds, and other original ideas from the Modern War Institute, please visit the War Council blog at mwi.usma.edu or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find new episodes of the Modern War Institute podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. For the Modern War Institute, I'm Captain Jake Moraldi. I hope you'll join us next time for more in-depth discussions on war, policy, and leadership.